So uh, we're going to, if you want to turn, if you've got a Bible, um, you can turn to it. If you haven't, don't worry. Um, but um, Rachel's going to come and read from Romans chapter 6. And uh, we've been working through the book of Romans. So uh, she's going to just uh, read that for us now. Thank you, Rachel. Romans chapter 6. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live in new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our own sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. When we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know that we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead, and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. And when he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourself completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law, but instead you live under the freedom of God's grace. Well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sin? Of course not. Don't you realise that you become a slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God which leads to righteous living. Thank God, once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we've given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. Because of the weaknesses of your human nature, I'm using the illustration of slavery to help you understand all this. Previously, you let yourselves be slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led ever deeper into sin. But now you must give yourselves to be slaves to righteous living, so that you will become holy. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from your obligation to do right. And what was the result? You are now ashamed of the things you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. But now you are free from the power of sin and have become a slave of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. And the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Thank you, Rachel. One of the things that I really watch, love watching on television is a good courtroom drama. It's just really exciting, isn't it? And, and the arguments go back and forwards, one against the other, and the good guys always seem to be losing, and then at the very last minute, 
they find a critical little piece of information that just turns everything all around. But the phrase that you could guarantee you'll hear multiple times is, Your Honour, I object. I've always wanted to say that. Just at that last critical moment, I object. And, and some, some of the, the Roman Christians must have been feeling just like shouting, I object, as they're listening to those words being read out from Paul's letter. But Paul seems to know exactly what they are thinking. And it's all based around this one question, does grace mean that we can just carry on sinning? And Paul says, no. Instead, he encourages us to live a life of victory over sin. And he begins in verses 1 to 10, he says we need, we need to know. And what Paul wants us to understand is basic doctrine. Living as a Christian depends on knowing truth. And while, while we don't need to become academic theologians, we do need to understand the truth of God's word See, Satan wants us to stay ignorant so that he can mess with our heads. And you need to understand the truth that your identity is in Jesus. You're, un- you're united with Christ. The, fact that the facts that are true of Jesus are also true of those who follow him. Our identity is in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Now, none of us I don't think of any problem with identifying with sin. Parents don't need to teach their children how to be selfish or how to lie or how to say no. They, they learn that all by themselves all too quickly. In fact, as soon as kids get old enough, they start, as soon as they start to think for themselves, they can identify with sin all too easily. But when you are born again, when you're born of the Holy Spirit, of the Spirit of God, your identity and your allegiance changes. You now identify with Christ and his righteousness and his justification. And Paul says you are actually dead to sin. Galatians 2.20, he puts it, I am crucified with Christ. Now that doesn't mean that we no longer sin or actually we no longer even want to sin. We'll deal with that in in chapter 7. It means that the moment someone becomes a Christian, they no longer are under the reign, under the power, under the control of sin. And therefore, we should not be involved in it, and it should certainly not be the main driver within our life. We mustn't tolerate sin in our life. Instead, we need to fight it. In fact, we need to grieve over it. In Jesus, you have died to sin so that you should no longer be continuing to sin. But actually more than that, you're not only dead to sin, you are alive in Christ. You're raised from the dead and you walk in the power of his resurrection. You walk in newness of life because you share in his life. And and Paul uses, conveniently, particularly as we're doing baptism this weekend, Paul uses baptism as the illustration for this. And they say this is the perfect Sunday because we're going to see this, if you like, right out before our eyes, the whole picture, this illustration beautifully presented to us when, it, when it, a little bit later on we actually are going to be baptizing Kelly and, and Emily. Now the Greek word baptismo, which hasn't changed much in the English, means to plunge, to dip, to immerse. 
That means, of course, there's going to be lots of water involved within that. So Kelly and Emily, sorry, you are going to get very, very wet in this process. You're going to be completely immersed under the water. Now, there's nothing magical about the amount of water that we're using here. But what is significant is what the water itself represents. Water baptism is a picture of joining with Jesus in his burial and his resurrection. So Paul writes in Romans 6, 3 to 4, Paul describes in a sentence what it means to know Jesus. He says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism unto death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So as you'll see in a few moments... Those who are going to be baptized are going to go right under the water. We're going to hold them there for a few seconds. We're going to count to 10 or 20. No, we're not. We're not. Honestly, we're not. <laughs> and this is a public picture of dying with Christ, bearing our sins with him. And then when, we come, when they come back up again, it represents sharing in the resurrection of Jesus. Our sins stay buried, but we are made alive. So in being baptized, it is a clear demonstration that we want to be cut off from the grip that sin has over our lives. Listen, this is a breathtaking outline of the doctrine of union with Christ. If you trust Jesus, we are in him, and whatever is true of him is now legally true of us. When he died, we actually died. When he rose, we actually rose. And in water baptism, we reminded that our identification is with Christ through salvation. And we are filled with his spirit. When a sinner trusts in Christ, they are immediately born into the family of God. And they are filled with the spirit. They believed and they are saved. But we also need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And sometimes that happens at the moment of conversion. Sometimes it's actually a separate event. Either way around, you need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And water baptism by immersion is just a beautiful picture of what the Spirit is doing in the life of the believer. But so often, we just sit on the fence. And listen, sitting on fences is the most uncomfortable place that you're ever going to sit. You are saved, but you're never actually satisfied. You're living somewhere between Good Friday and, and Easter Sunday. You believe in the cross, but you've not entered into the power and the glory of the resurrection that you should be enjoying today. So in Colossians 3, verse 1 to 3, it says this, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, which, where Christ sits in the place of honour at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And it's very clear that fence-sitting is the most unhappy, it's the most unfulfilling existence for a child of God. Your new identity is in Christ, so why would you want to dabble with the old life of death? Imagine a wicked military force has complete control over a country and then this good army comes in, it invades, it takes power and throws out the wicked army, throws them out of the capital, in fact out of the government. 
But that wicked force is now out of power, is completely defeated, but it still can create some havoc in the rest of the country through guerrilla warfare. And so it is with the Christian. Sin has been thrown out of power and has no hold over you, yet it still fights hard. All the time, sin wants to be your master again. It wants to try and find a foothold within the old nature. But remember, you've been crucified. In Christ, you died to sin. Sin and death have got no power over Christ. His victorious resurrection saw to that. Therefore, since by faith you are in Christ, sin and death has got no power over you. That is fact. But the big question is, how on earth do we live this out in our lives today? So in verse 11, Paul says, you need to consider something. You need to count something. He says, in the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And Paul says that we need to take into account, we need to be calculating, we need to be reckoning what you know needs to be applied to your life. And Paul is not telling us to feel as if we're dead to sin or even to understand it fully, but to act on God's word and to claim it for your own life. This is faith in action. It's getting off the fence and it's walking into all the promises of God. But actually it's more than just claiming a promise. It's acting on a fact. Listen, God does not command you to become dead to sin. He tells you that you are already dead to sin and you are alive in Christ and you are to act on the truth. But actually, whether you act on it or not, it is still true. And you have to live in the light of this truth. Otherwise, you're like someone who's maybe going through financial difficulties. Maybe you're really struggling to make ends meet. But all the time you have this massive inheritance, perhaps just a huge trust fund. But you never bother drawing any money out of it. You never spend any of that money. You just completely ignore it. Listen, it's only as you live as people who are dead to sin and alive to, life to God that you will experience a life free from the power of sin. But to make this a reality within your life, you need to surrender all of your life over to God. And we've heard this already in the worship minute, and Paul, as he finishes this last little section from 12 to 23, Paul is telling us we need to surrender ourselves to God. Later on in Romans chapter 1, verse 12, we are told to offer up our bodies as living sacrifice and, and, and Jesus is asking us to live for him and to be like him but, but how do we live a surrendered life to Jesus well this is a grace driven act of the will that is based on the, on the facts and the knowledge of all that Jesus Christ has done for us the Amplified Bible puts it like this therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its lusts and its passions. Do not go on offering members of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but offer yourself to God in a decisive act as those alive, raised from the dead to a new life, and your members, all of your abilities, sanctified, set apart as instruments of righteousness, yielded to God. But this is both a once for all surrender but also it's an ongoing surrender 
But it must begin with that moment when you surrender everything over to him. And you will never have a consistent victory over sin unless you give everything over to Jesus. And the truth is, some of you just haven't done that yet. And you need to. You need to give your life completely over to the Lord Jesus Christ. But the obvious question, of course, is why? Why would I even bother? Let me give you some reasons. First of all, it's because of favor and grace. Paul says in verses 14 to 15, it's because of God's grace that we yield ourselves over to him. The Bible is very clear. You are not saved by obeying laws. You're not saved by being religious. You are saved by grace. By his grace, we receive his free and his unmerited favor. And the implication of understanding God's grace should lead us to two responses. First of all, it should lead to a transformed life. See, no matter how bad you are, no matter how good you are, you need to surrender all of your life over to Jesus, realizing that you can do nothing to deserve God. And sometimes he allows us to be brought low and even broken before our spiritual eyes are open and we begin to see the gulf that exists between you and a righteous and holy God. And then in Jesus, to see the bridge of his grace. And he will forgive you. He will accept you and he will love you. And all of your sins will be forgiven. They're cast into the very deepest of oceans, never to be held against you again. By grace, through faith, you can know that you are loved by God, forgiven, justified and accepted. But also, it actually changes the way in which we live as Christians. Because becoming more like Christ is only as a result of God's grace. It's got nothing, nothing to do with our own merits. And your good deeds, the Bible says, are like dirty rags. All the good that you do, your Christian disciplines, your do's, your don'ts, they don't make one pick of difference. God's grace is not dependent on anything that you do. And such is the grace of God that when we fully understand it, it actually may even, ex- may even expose us to the possibility of misunderstanding and asking the question that Paul does at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 6, verse 1, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? The truth is, if that thought has never entered your head as, you, as you've ex- explored the grace of God, you have never fully understood the transforming grace of God. Because grace removes legalism from our lives. It frees us from our do's and don'ts. It's all of God. And if we fully grasp that it's all of God and it's got nothing to do with myself, it will never become an excuse for not sinning or for carrying on sinning. Once we've truly experienced such grace and such love, instead it will say, I love you, Lord. I don't deserve what you've done for me. But you will want to obey, not because you have to, but because you want to. And your service for God becomes an act of thanksgiving. And your your prayer life begins to increase. And the love for God's word grows. And there is this new freedom in the Holy Spirit. And you experience joy unspeakable. The second reason why we should surrender to God is because of freedom. 16 to 20. I want to let you into a little secret. No one is free. Everybody is a slave to something or to someone. And we we offer ourselves a sacrifice on some altar. We serve some cause. And 
we are slaves to the most important thing within our lives. And what we serve will become our master. It controls our actions and our attitudes. So listen, choose very, very carefully. What Paul says is actually there are only two fundamental things, two kinds of masters, God or sin. And whenever you choose not to obey God, you are not choosing to be free. You're choosing to be a slave to sin rather than to your saviour. In fact, you should be as enthusiastic, more enthusiastic about submitting to Jesus than you ever were about submitting to sin. You should be as good a sinner as you were a saint. And it's only when you fully submit to Jesus Christ that you will find true freedom. The third thing is reason to submit is because of the results that will happen, because of the fruit, verse 21 to 23. See, if you serve a master, you, will, you can't expect to get paid. And sin pays a wage. It's death. It says Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. But God also pays a wage, an incredible wage. It's holiness and eternal life. And in your new life through faith in Christ, you should be producing fruit that brings glory and honour to God, but also brings joy within your own life as well. Now, we normally apply Romans 6.23 to people who are not yet Christians, and although that's not wrong, this is actually written to Christians. And if as a Christian you refuse to surrender your body over to the Lord Jesus, but instead you use it for sinful purposes then you can expect discipline from the Father in heaven. And if you do not respond in repentance to God's discipline, this can even lead to death. But Paul is not necessarily talking about eternal future death, but about a present death, a death that people reap at this time, verse 21, is the kind of death in life, a brokenness. And if you are enslaved to something other than to God... You will not reap satisfaction or security, but you'll reap anxiety and self-pity and a sense of inadequacy and envy and actually much worse. And it's so important that we know the truth, we consider and we apply it to our lives and we submit ourselves to Jesus so that we can be used for his glory and for his honour. But knowing that your identity is in Christ by grace alone is life-changing. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. And I pray now as I've been praying and leading up to this that God would open minds and hearts, apply this message to our lives and allow him to transform our lives. And some of you have come in this morning and perhaps you've come in feeling broken and God will want to say to you, I want to put you back together again. Others, perhaps you're sitting on the fence, you're messing around with, with sin, and you think you can have the best of both worlds. Listen, it leads to absolute misery. You need to give your life completely over to the Lord Jesus Christ. But also there are far too many Christians who are just trying to do their best. They're trying hard. They think if they could work hard enough, they might be able to earn some favor with God. And life has just become a list of do's and don'ts. The Holy Spirit isn't moving in your life. There's no freedom. The devil is just sucking the joy out of your life. 
Listen, you need to know that Jesus Christ has done it all. It is by grace alone, whether it's for the first time when you come to faith in Christ, or whether you've been a Christian for many, many years, it is by grace alone that you're saved and that you live. But Jesus expects your all. Only when you give him your everything will you find true freedom in him. So as we just bring this to a close, we want to just want to just encourage you, if you have never given your life over to the Lord Jesus, today is a great day. We're going to celebrate in a moment the baptism of those who have done that and made that step already. But it's a very simple step, just a simple prayer of faith. When you say, Lord Jesus, I know I've done some messed up stuff. I know I'm a sinner. I know I've done some wrong things. Lord Jesus, please forgive me. And Jesus, I admit that I need you, but also I know that you are the answer to that problem, to my problem of sin. As you invite the Lord Jesus Christ to come into your life, he will come and he will transform your life by his spirit. Let's just stand together. I'm just going to pray. Then I'm going to invite um, Emily and Kelly to come forward. They're going to share their story of what Jesus means to them in a, in a moment or two. But I just want to just take a moment. And Father, I want to thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your faithfulness. And Father, I want to pray, Lord, as we just gather here, Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, just rest upon our lives. Father, just be speaking into hearts today. Father, we pray, Lord God, that you would truly transform people's lives. Lord, set us free, Lord God, from the grip that sin has over us. Lord, and I pray, God, that you would just release us now into the fullness that all that we are in and through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray all of that in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.